if I can somehow use my story to help relate to somebody else and to make them feel less alone as some people did with me, I think that that's something that is a full circle moment, if you will, that show that healing is possible. Hey everyone, it's Angie Morgan Wachowski. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of Spark, Bet on You. I'm a Marine Corps veteran and I am the grateful host of the Bet on You show. This is a podcast where we get to feature inspiring people who share their stories to help you bet on you. And we are now in season four. When we started about a year ago, I didn't know where this journey was going to take us, but now we're here. And I'm much clearer on the process I want to go through of developing this podcast. And in season four, I want to focus on the three C's of risk-taking, how you can get clear on the direction that you're headed, how you can demonstrate confidence to believe that you can do whatever it is that you want to do, and how you can demonstrate everyday courage to live the life that you were meant to live. Now, today's guest is really powerful. She is soft-spoken, but man, she's got the story to tell. It is Kristen Mikoff. She is the author of A Widow's Guide to Healing, and she shares her story and the stories of other women who've lost their spouse and their journey through healing. And what's significant about her story is that she's not talking necessarily just of moving through grief. She's talking about moving through life, carrying grief with us, because it's not like it just goes away. There's no you know, magic eraser that we can go back in our past and just clean up the whiteboard. It comes with us. So what do we do? How do we move through this? And I'm going to share a story about my brother's death in this story, because I really want to just open up that, you know, you might not have lost a spouse, but maybe you do have grief that you want to work with and through. I lost my younger brother to suicide. Uh, He was in his early 20s, and so was I. It was a pretty tragic, surprising, sudden death. And I moved through grief all by myself. I was married at the time, but I was married to a Marine who was deployed. We had just moved to a new community in North Carolina, so I didn't really have friends. I had acquaintance. And after I realized there wasn't enough wine in Jacksonville, North Carolina, to solve my challenges, I committed to a process and it came out much stronger, more resilient because of the work that I'd done. So Kristen's gonna talk about that journey with us all today. She's gonna share the wisdom that she's acquired through her own story and the stories of others. So tune in because I know that you're going to get some guidance, some wisdom that's gonna help give you that spark to demonstrate everyday courage in your life. really excited about our next guest, Kristen Mikoff. She has an amazing story to tell, but the reason I was excited to interview Kristen was really just to talk to you all about her story and how she really went through the process of healing after significant loss. So Kristen, thanks so much for being on the Bet on You show. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Can you share your story? Well, which part of <laughs> Well, I know as the author of A Widow's Guide to Healing, I would love to hear, you know, your life story that led you to write this book. So 
Um, unfortunately, in uh, 1979, when I was two weeks shy of turning five, I actually lost my father to cancer. So my very first experience with grief and loss was that for my mother. She was a widow, and it's actually the first time I heard the word widow. And in the late 70s, grief and loss was not something that was part of the vernacular in everyday conversations. And now um, we're talking about grief and loss more. We're seeing it in secular uh, magazines as well as medical magazines, excuse me, medical journals and experts are talking about it, business places that talk about how to cope with loss. And in 2007, um, I lost my husband. I was 33 at the time. And it was a very sudden diagnosis of adrenal cancer. He was asymptomatic. So there was absolutely no warning that something was wrong with him. And approximately eight weeks after he was misdiagnosed, with bronchitis, he died in a home. I had done hospice care with him. I was not prepared for that at all, being a hospice caregiver. Absolutely nothing prepared me for it. And after his death, I really was forced to go back to work. Actually, about three three days after, I had used up all of my FMLA to take care of him. And uh, the medical um, crisis that we were you know, enduring required me that I was become the full-time caregiver. And I know many people are balancing that delicate act of caregiving, whether it's for a spouse or partner, a parent, a child. And it's incredibly stressful and difficult to do that when you're also working. And in, as I was saying, in 2007, after I lost him, um, I read everything I could about grief and loss. This is before, you know, smartphones and you were able to download lots of articles and books and things. And I wasn't able to find the narratives of women. They were somewhat in the margins. And C.S. Lewis says that we read to know that we're less alone. I couldn't agree more with that. And so I was really struggling to find narratives of women. It didn't have to be the those who endure the, the uh, passing of a spouse or partner, but I was curious how people coped. So I read everything from People Magazine to a Medical Journal, as I said, and I saw this paucity really in the literature for women. And so several years after that, I decided I was going to travel the globe and find the stories of women who endure the, the loss of a spouse or partner. I went to Kenya, where women live on less than a dollar a day, to Boston to interview a woman who lost her husband on 9-11, to the backwoods of Montana, where a woman lost her husband in an avalanche, to Birmingham, Michigan, where a woman told me the story about her husband died by suicide and everything in between. And so I put their stories together along with practical advice from experts in each subject matter areas. So my book, A Widow's Guide to Healing, is thematically connected by healing after loss with standalone chapters for people who are struggling, everything from financial to solo parenting to what to do when you're back in the workplace and you're struggling to really maintain an image that you've put together and yet you feel like you're coming apart on the inside. You said something that I really resonated with. I lost my brother to suicide in my early 20s and I had to go to work a couple of days later and on that day get a ride along from my manager to have my sales performance evaluated. And it was, I'll say, you know, the whole thing was tragic and traumatizing and 
to get that level of pressure on you. And that's just something that happens to all of us. You going back to work after this traumatic experience at three days, which is why I really liked, I was reading about your book through some of the interviews that you've done, talking not just, you know, moving through grief, but living with grief because we still have responsibilities. And I think that really resonates with a lot of our audience members too, especially coming out of a pandemic, the grief that we might still be experiencing, we still have to get up in the morning. Sometimes maybe it is put a face on and move forward. And maybe the idea of taking a risk can seem really big, maybe really selfish, maybe just impossible. I, I would love to hear for you, those early days, what motivated you? What got you out of bed? What helped inspire you to go through at least those motions? I really did it out of a necessity because quite honestly, I was afraid of losing my job. This is in 2007. We all know what happened in 2008. Mm -hmm. And my prior experience with my mother, when my father was ill, um, you know, we were on food stamps and that was in the late seventies. And I can still remember what it felt like to have to receive services from, you know, a food pantry, not being able to afford certain things when it came to the checkout and having to put things back. Oh, so gosh. that kind of experience doesn't leave you. It, there's another feeling of feeling poor. And I think that that was part of the reason that I decided that I would be getting up every day and going to work. Sure, I wanted to lay you know, face down in my pillow and stay home. I was journaling at the time and I found an entry recently. I was looking back at it for another reason. I remember reading it. I, I couldn't believe I wrote it. I, I did write it. It said, I wish I could just stay home to take care of myself. And many, as you said, do not have that ability to do that because there are the pressures from work. And so what I did, I did journaling. It really, um, I think it's underestimated, but a lot of times we, as in bereavement, uh, conceal our grief. And we know that concealing, there is physical effects from that and it takes its toll as well as grieving itself. So one of the things I think that gave me hope was I would look for small good things each day and I would look for people to um, were able to give me some type of hope that there was a path forward. And I, I still remember those people, um, those small acts of kindness. And I hope that that inspires others to do the same for someone who's struggling. I think about those small acts of kindness too. Um, I remember going through my brother's funeral and in a weird way, it was comforting because I was surrounded. I was surrounded by love. But then a the couple days later, it's silent. It's, you know, the world, it seems, has moved on. Of course, it hasn't. People are still thinking about you, but there's a lot of silence. So those small little things are important, as is what you're talking about, those everyday acts of courage. We think of courage as this big moment, you know, that you're saving somebody's life or doing something daring. But I think in the early days of grief, small acts of courage is committing to journaling. It's committing to, you know, put, <laughs> wash your hair in the morning, put your makeup on, go shopping, make a meal for yourself. It's those small things that over time help you build the confidence. What um, for you made you just have this moment? Because obviously you're moving through grief your journals are pretty powerful. What gives you the courage to want to help others? Was there a moment for you um, or is it really just through the process of trying to find help and not feeling like you were getting the right help needed? I think part of it is that 
being aware that there's suffering all around. And so if I can somehow use my story to help relate to somebody else and to make them feel less alone as some people did with me, I think that that's something that is a full circle moment, if you will. And those are the types of things and opportunities that show that healing is possible and perhaps will inspire someone else to do somewhat something of the same nature. I'd like to hear from you too about just the process of listening to other people's stories. What did you gain from that experience? I, you know, I think that there's power in the narrative and sharing our stories with one another and being able to listen to it is one of the ways in which healing happens. And I think that's one of the reasons why support groups are so powerful is because people are able to share their stories with non-judgment and people are able to feel accepted for their stories no matter what it is. And a lot of the shame decreases when there's things, for example, when someone has died by suicide, there's still a lot of shame that goes around that. And so if others are able to support one in sharing their story, I really feel that it helps to lessen the pain and the intensity of it. It does not change what happened, but it helps to decrease the burden of the um, the shame that the company is in. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're saying that. And I'm thinking back to about the power of story. I remember a woman I, I worked with at the time, she sharing with me that her sister had died of suicide. And it gave me so much comfort because she could say that and not lose it. Whereas I couldn't have that. I mean, I couldn't even hardly talk about it, but she could stand there composed in front of me and talk about it. And it gave me just something to strive for. Like that moment, I mean, the fact that I'm talking about it today. So I, I give you so much just admiration for your courage in sharing the story. I know when you lose someone, you know, you go from being in a, in a couple situation and now you have this unwanted identity of, being a widow, it, it shakes your identity. I would be curious, Kristen, how did you go through the process of finding out who you were in the process? I remember it's actually years later, I was in Mitch Album's studio and he had, I was invited to listen to one of his recordings. So he's very well known for the book Tuesdays with Maury, along with, um, I think it's the five people we meet in heaven. I just, mm -hmm. I just uh, was looking at another one of his books and I said that I, you know, I wrote this book and he said, you're a widow. And I remember he looked at me and he actually just stopped. And he, I said, I didn't know what to say. And he said, you look too young to be a widow. And coming from Mitch Elm, it really took me aback because I forget sometimes that that's how people see me first when I share, you know, parts of my story. And I think that it's part of our identity is that we still have the power to be able to shape that. Others may give their impressions upon us and they share what they feel sh we should be doing, but we are able to shape it each day by the decisions that we make and also by um, the way in which we think, which of course is one of the most powerful ways to impact the way that we show up for ourselves. I know you have just amazing dreams. At what stage did you, I guess, give yourself permission to start dreaming again? And by the way, if you're listening, like one of the things I know about you, because I, again, follow you on social media, Kristen, is like, you know, some pretty cool people. Like you get mentorship from Deepak Chopra and okay, you like, 
very yeah. very close friend and you and i'm and you've like networked your way and i hear i was reading um, a piece that was done by katie kirk mm-hmm. about you this you've been able to network your way into just some really powerful spaces for conversation and you know going back to your journal note where like i just want to you know stay home and take care of myself to I will say the force that you are today, sharing your story and the stories of others and even getting a second book. Like, how did you go through that process of getting this courageous? Well, I figured out, and I, it was much to my surprise very early on that I was responsible for getting my message out. So I thought at the time, because I had a literary agent and a publisher, that they would be doing that for me. And they said, absolutely not. You have to do all of that prior to getting a book deal. So on my own, I decided I was going to reach out and I was going to be fearless about it. And I reached out to Deepak. I reached out to Katie Kirk, to Maria Shriver. And Deepak um, became my very good friend and mentor and has helped me in, in countless ways through the process. But I did, you know, I did it on my own. People, I think, think that he did all of these introductions, and that's actually not the case. Katie Kirk um, has been extremely generous and kind with me. She sat with me for over an hour in New York just talking with me. And um, I think that... I just made the decision to be fearless because I knew I had nothing to lose. And it was also knowing that all of these women had bravely shared their stories. And I didn't want that to just go unnoticed. I'd be curious what advice you have for somebody right now who's grieving and has a really hard time of imagining having ambition again, or imagine having dreams of their own. What what would you say to somebody like that? I would say to start with small good things and what small good things can you do for yourself and what small good things can you do for somebody else? Because there's great power in the compassion and in noticing and listening. And we actually do get a lot from giving. And I don't mean overextending yourself, but I mean doing, like I said, small good things that connect you with somebody else to make you feel less alone. And two, you mentioned earlier about the process of journaling and reflection. I've always found that journaling is just a way for me to get clear. You know, my mind, I think like a mile a minute, but I don't really know what I think until I write it down. And then committing to that process helps me get clear or clearer of a direction. Um, in addition to journaling, what do you do to center yourself or clarify your vision? Um, I still do a lot of journaling. I do some meditation. I do a lot of reading and I'm very intentional with the people that I speak with. So that goes everything from, for example, an interview like this to who I have a very small social circle of friends. um, And I'm just very careful with my time because it's Deepak taught me was all energy. So I use that in a very intentional way. And I like being outside as well and doing, you know, the the walking in, in the nature and things like that. You're saying something really great too, just about the people you choose to surround yourself when you're going through mm-hmm. a recovery process. Can you go a little bit deeper on that? Um, about, you know, the energy that you're trying to draw towards you and maybe the energy that you're getting isn't the energy that you need. How do you manage that? Um, healing is very intense and it's very important that 
you're with people who are supporting that. So I learned very early on that there are deep disappointments that come and the people that you thought would be with you to support you are suddenly nowhere to be found. And if you ruminate on those that are not there for you, you will miss the opportunity to heal yourself in other ways. And so that's what I had to do was focus on what was available to me and what opportunities there were for me to heal instead of ruminating. And women, the researchers show, tend to ruminate more, and that actually does cause more anxiety and more feelings of sadness. And I strongly believe that what we think impacts how we feel. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk about your next book? Because I imagine it's a continuation of the work that you're doing. Sure. I'm really excited to tell you I'm working with Dr. Amy Young on a book about compassionate leadership and the seven things that we found that compassionate leaders do as a way forward for both hope and healing in our world today and in the new world of business. Can you share one of those things? One of the things we found is that um, compassionate leaders instill a sense of wonder and awe. And I think that both are somewhat powerful in the way not only that children look at the world through a childlike wonder and a sense of a lens of awe, but also it really inspires us to see each other differently. Okay. I love that you brought up hope too. I was reading something about hope not too long ago that even pessimists have hope. (laughs) You know, it's not just for us optimists. We all have hope to get us into a new arena. And so for those listeners out there who you know, again, are are really struggling with thinking, gosh, how am I going to have big dreams? How am I going to pursue this? Getting by day to day is strong enough. It's like, gosh, you need hope too. Don't give up on the hope. Um, Any guidance, last uh, question for you, Kristen, any guidance for people right now, just thinking about them wanting to take a risk with, you know, with their dreams or push themselves or make a bet on themselves? Could you encourage them? You're worth making a bet on yourself. I think after a loss, our self-esteem tends to plummet and we tend to limit the way that we think about ourselves. And that causes us to really um, hold ourselves to, you know, a lesser degree of, of hopefulness and a promise. And I think that in setting even small goals for yourself and knowing that you have the power to to change the way that you think and, and feel about a situation is really inspires us to do bigger things. Many times it's the way that we perceive ourselves and others that uh, are become roadblocks and black hope and that sense of wonder. At any stage. And so listeners, any stage that you are at in life or at grief, there is opportunity and you are worth it. Kristen, thank you so much for being on Bet On You. Great. Thank just, you. The work that you're doing is so inspiring. And I'm just so thank excited you. we were able to have this conversation. Thank you so much. I can't begin to tell you how important of a conversation that was. And I'm sure you took away many things from Kristen's just point of view and perspective, but I'll share with you the three things that just really meant a lot to me. It's very early on in our conversation, she just hinted at the fact that when we're going through anything difficult, particularly grief, but anything challenging, we're constantly fighting with ourselves over what we want to do versus what we need to do. 
And it's that everyday courage to get us to the place through those small things of what we need to do to move forward that we really need to reward ourselves with. I like to call them, and I wrote about them in Bet on You, everyday wins. I think we tend to think of winning like we're standing on a mountaintop or hands at a V, like we're, you know, just conquered something. I tell you, in my life, everyday winning is getting a coffee, you know, a cup of coffee in the morning before everybody wakes up and the room is picked up. Like that's what winning looks like in my life. So what are those everyday wins for you? And what do you have to conquer to get there? Again, sometimes it's really just your mind, your attitude, and that tendency to pull you into comfort where you know that you got to have a little bit of discomfort to move forward in life for your dreams and ambitions. The second thing is that stories can help you heal and your story can help others heal. The more we talk about the pain, the grief, the tragedy, the unexpected surprise, the more we realize we're not alone and we're a part of a community, and Chris had said it best, that when we can talk about our grief in circles, in these self-help communities, we're able to move through our pain much more productively, much more efficiently. The final thing she talked about was small gifts, small gifts that we can give ourselves and small gifts that we can give others. So maybe where you stand today, you've got it together. You've wanted to tune into this episode because you're like, this is a topic I don't know much about because I haven't had you know the extreme tragedies that you're talking about. Well, maybe though, you have people in your community who are going through some significant challenge right now. What small gift can you give them? Thanks all again for listening to Bet on You. And if you want to take things a little bit deeper and explore what else we have to offer as a learning community, please visit www.angieconnect.com and you can start to see other ways that we can share in conversation, share in learning, and continue to bet on ourselves. Thank you. Thank you.